Good morning and welcome to West Seattle Christian Church. If you're new with us, welcome. If not, welcome back. Uh, just a brief note to let you know if you missed uh, the last prayer meeting for September, we're having another one at 9 a.m. on October 4th, the first Sunday in October, and we'd love for you to join us for that. Again, you'll have to go to the blog post that we set up, fill out the form that you want to be allowed into the meeting, and then we'll send you a Zoom link for that. So just an added layer of security. Um, for our meetings that we do online. Uh, so I'd appreciate it if you do that in advance and not wait till the last minute, that would be great. So um, we're in the midst of a new series relatively at the beginning of it called Unqualified. And we've been taking a look at Gideon and this week we're gonna shift things up a little bit. I'm gonna take the opportunity in this series to ask uh, kind of like a subtext of questions sometimes uh, having to do with that word unqualified or the word qualified. and. Um, this week, as we continue the series, we're going to take a look at uh, a woman in the scriptures that probably, I'd wager almost all of you ha have not paid attention to, um, particularly because she is unnamed. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, the text is going to be from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 26. And uh, I think we're going to be looking at a few different women in this series as well. I know we'll do one next week. And um, they both come into the realm of unqualified and, and asking that question, but particularly because this week they are, both of them are, for different reasons, are asking the question, why me? And, and I think that is a pertinent question for all of us, what we're all going through now, but even in the microcosms of our own little lives, um, individually, all the things that you've experienced in your life, we, we, we often ask this question, why me. And so there's different situations and different reasons for these first two uh, figures that we're going to study, who for the, the reasons why they asked that question. But let's get into it. So as I mentioned before, this woman, we don't know what her actual name is, but we do know where she came from. She came from a place called Shunem, and we find her story mixed into the story of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings. Uh, so turn to that, and, and then we'll jump in. Um, Throughout this little story, she is simply referred to as the Shunammite, the Shunammite. So if you've never heard of that before, um, new story for you. So here we go, starting in verse 8. Uh, and I'm going to read part of this, and I'm going to kind of do selected texts from it because so, it's kind of lengthy. Um, it says, one day, in verse 8, one day Elisha went to Shunam, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put, it, put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. And then he could stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on behalf of on your behalf to the king or commander of the army. And she replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked Gehazi. And, and Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Uh, so he's implying something there. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you're going to hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. So something is wrong with him physically. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. 
She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. She asks some, some questions, says, can I go meet the man of God? And what's really interesting is she comes to meet him. And at the end in verse 26, Elisha says, run to meet her to his servant and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And she replies, everything is all right. Okay, that's the story. That's where we're going to leave it right now. Um, how could it be all right? How could it be all right? I mean, you have, to, you, you have to believe that she's asking the question, why me? When something horrible happens like this, or like in our day and age, like car wreck, or losing your job, or getting a, a cancer diagnosis, or something like that, we're going to think, why me? I remember when, uh, when we used to live back in Idaho, my wife was rear-ended a, a couple times, one time in a parking lot, one time right around the corner from our house, another time a lady blew right through a light and ran into her and we're, you know, like, why us? Why me? Um, I'm sure all of you have experiences like this. The question is, it's like, why do I qualify for this? Uh, why do I qualify for this? Um, and I know some of you have dealt with this. Maybe the point of this talk is basically when these things come into our lives, how do we face these challenges? How do we face them? All she says, I want to consider the woman's response here for a minute, the Shunammite woman, simple words in the face of extreme suffering. All she says is, it is well. What, what does that tell you? What does that reveal to us about this woman and particularly about her faith? I, I think the answer is very clear that this is a person of deep, deep faith, of confidence in the wisdom and the ways of God. Uh, you could say she just doesn't feel anything, but I don't think that's the case. I think you and I both know that when things happen to us, we can choose to brush them under the rug. We can choose to try to run away from our feelings, but we're still asking these questions. And at one point or another, we can't avoid them anymore. So is she doing that or is there something really deeper there? Well, I choose to believe that she is She is basically saying, I have confidence in God. It's And God is represented to her by this man of God, Elisha, who has done great things for her, who who actually said, this, this, you're going to have a son, you know. There's lots of examples of this that we could go to. One of my favorites is um, a man named Horatio Spafford. There's a, there's a story about him. It's a true story. You can look it up, Wikipedia, type it in Google, um, and you'll find lots of people repeating this story over and over and, and extrapolating different, different ways of dealing with hard things from it. He was a, a successful lawyer and businessman in 1860 Chicago, and um, in, in the 1870s, things started to go wrong for him. Um, his his four-year-old son died from scarlet fever, and he had been a great uh, um, investor in property, he owned a bunch of property in Chicago. And then in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire basically like burned down most of his properties. Um, and then after that happened, he was like, I want to take my wife and my four remaining daughters on a vacation. We're going to go to England and, and we're going to get away from all this for a little while. And so they were about to go on this trip and then something happened where he had to, uh, he had to stay behind, but he sent them on ahead and he's like, I'm going to catch up with you. And he sends his daughters across the ocean and um, they are on a, on a, on a French uh, sailing vessel called the Vie de Havre. Um, 
hope I'm saying that right. But anyway, they, um, they are on their way and their vessel hits another vessel and it sinks in a matter of minutes. And at that point in the ocean, the ocean is three miles deep. Um, and I think there's over 260 lives that were lost. So it's nine days after that tragic event happens that he gets a telegram from Wales and it's from his wife. And all it says is saved alone. And he had lost, they lost all four of their daughters uh, to a watery grave. Now Spafford, he was a very active Christian, very active in the Chicago community. And because he was a, a, a prominent businessman, he had money and he was giving to causes um, and he was um, supporting Christian works and schools. He actually supported Dwight L. Moody. Um, if you haven't looked him up, you can look him up as well. Um, so he was supporting great ministries and yet he is hit with these awful tragic events in his life, the, the, these hard, 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 difficult things. And I guarantee you, he must have thought, why me? What qualified me to take on these woes, these tragedies? And, and what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Surely, uh, for a man who seemed to have his life together, who was in love with, passionately with Jesus, who was following God's commands for his life, was trying to serve God and his church, surely he was unqualified to deserve this. This is much like how I think people I know now who have had similar things happen, uh, how they deal with it. They're asking these questions. I now have had three friends who've been diagnosed, uh, Christian friends who've been diagnosed with brain tumors, countless Christian friends diagnosed with some form of cancer, or, uh, and then they beat it and then it comes back and they beat it and it comes back, or maybe they don't, you know? I, in fact, just a few weeks ago, uh, a family friend was diagnosed, he went, he, he went in with some pain, was diagnosed with cancer, and he was gone a week later. And a man of great faith and his family, such great faith that his family, even though it's a hard thing and they're asking, why is this happening? They're able to see the light in it. They're able to see the goodness in it. They were able to express joy. Uh, and, and, and that is because faith in Jesus is robust. A faith in Jesus that goes deep and matures uh, can look at all things uh, and see what, that God is working there, even though it's very, very hard. And it's not dismissive in, in any way, shape, or form of the pain. Um, many friends that I've had have lost jobs before COVID and after COVID uh, for seemingly no reason in some instances. And right now, everyone Everyone in our church, in this church, West Seattle Christian Church, is not able to meet physically for corporate worship because of COVID. And we can't even get together really, some of us can't get together uh, to be with anybody else. Some of you are in uh, uh, an age range that puts you at higher risk or you have health reasons that make you at higher risk, something like that. Um, the point is this, if you ever thought that becoming a Christian follower of Jesus was going to disqualify you from experiencing setbacks or suffering, then I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Terrible things do happen to good people all the time. And you know this innately, but sometimes we get sucked into this. It's kind of a lie, actually, that because you've chosen Jesus and because you uh, are a Christian and trying to follow him and make your life modeled after him, 
that you will be exempt from these things, and it's simply not the case. But I also have some good news. Christianity takes human suffering, our suffering, very seriously. In fact, I think Christianity provides a very rational basis for understanding suffering in a positive way. Um, it doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't mean it's not hard and it's difficult that we would take it away if we could. But it, it provides a rational basis for understanding suffering in a positive way. In fact, I think Christianity is the only worldview that actually does this in a good way. I want to take you through some understanding that we find for part of that good way um, in Romans, Romans chapter 8. And I'll just, I'll just read a couple of these verses to you, and then we'll extrapolate some stuff and go back to the story of the Shunammite woman in just a minute. But um, in, verse, in verse 18 of Romans 8, it says, I consider, I consider, this is Paul writing to the church in Romans. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, whatever we're going through right now, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's something that makes, there's something that makes whatever our sufferings might be not worth comparing, not worth even thinking about compared to the glory that is coming. It's a bit under, important to, for us to understand that. And then Paul goes on. He says in verse 19, For the creation, everything in this world, everything waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's you and me. We're going to be revealed in, in glory at some point. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This is an amazing verse. It's talking about how everything is decaying and falling apart. What, what is meant here by this bondage and decay? Well, the scriptures teach us that God made a perfect creation out of love, out of love. And that in that creation, he made you and I in his own image. And we talked about this in our last series, that you are tov me'od. You are real good. That's the way he made us. He made us out of love and he gave us the ability to love, but also to choose. So he gives us this incredible freedom to make decent choices, to choose good. You are not a robot, okay? And God has his plans. Yes, he's got plans that he's working, and those plans are going to happen. But you also have choices, and your choices have consequences. So out of his love, he gave us this incredible freedom. But the narrative tells us that, the narrative in the scriptures tells us that humanity chose poorly. We choose evil again and again and again and again. And as a consequence of that, we fell from grace. We fell out of that glory that God wanted for us. And creation, everything around us fell with it. Because if we're, if we're only going to do evil, then we're going to subject all of creation to the evil things, the evil choices that we make. So sin and corruption entered creation and terrible things happen because of this. Then I want you to go to verse 28 in that Romans passage. It says, and we know that in all things, this is a very famous, a famous uh, um, passage that I think people mistranslate sometimes. They, they, they look at it and they go, well, God is not going to give me anything I can't handle. And every, you know, and they kind of dismiss, they use it to say, see, and this is the worst when somebody uses this verse and says, especially if you're a Christian, you say this to a non-Christian, you say, look, that bad thing you went to or that bad thing that, you're, that you are going through right now, that awful thing, maybe you've lost a loved one and they're like, they come up to you right on the day it happened or something. They say, they use this verse to say, 
it's going to be okay because God's going to use this for, for good. It's like, that doesn't help me. I've lost my loved one. So my advice to you as a Christian is don't ever say that to somebody. There's This verse is here for a reason, and I want to flesh it out for you uh, a little bit. It says this in verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So, and even after this verse, down in verse 35, Paul talks about tribulations and trials and distress and poverty and anger and nakedness, all kinds of danger. The point of this is, how can a Christian be expected to live with any semblance of peace or joy in a world that has these things in it, in a world that's like this? Why should I go on believing in a God of love when he seems content to allow bad things to happen? Content, when we go back to the Shunammite story, content for this woman who lived all her life without a kid who said, no, don't give me a son to Elijah. I don't want that. Why did, why did she say that? Because she was afraid that it could be taken away from her, probably. She knew she would be exposed to the risk of losing a son. She would be rent asunder with anguish and pain if the unthinkable were to happen, and then it does happen. How can we go on believing in, a God, in God's love when we hear about stories like Horatio Spafford or the things that you know have happened in your life or in the lives of the ones you love? Well, the verses that we just read give us three reasons. That, that one point in verse 28, I would say, we read that those who love God, he works and holds all things together for good. He's saying, it's saying there, Paul's thought, train of thought is that bad things that in our life do turn out for good. But there's a time and a place to say that to somebody else. And maybe you don't ever say that to somebody else. You let them, you let them come, at the, come at it on their own. But what does that mean? I want you first to notice that all things happen to Christians just like they do to everyone else. You are not exempt because you are a Christian. Do Christians have a better life experience? In one sense, I would say absolutely we do. Yes, we do have a better life experience. I think when you obey God's instructions, our life is better. When you do the things he asks you to, to do, when, you're, when you want to live like Jesus did and obey that, that kind of living because you want to show God how much you love him because he loved you first, yeah, you're going to have a better life. But do we have better life circumstances than someone who's not a Christian? The answer is no. No, we don't. The Christian's external circumstances are no better than anyone else's. Terrible things happen to people who love God. Everything has fallen apart in this world since we started to think that we could go it alone without God way back in the beginning. But if things are holding together at all, if you get to go home and you have a roof over your head and that's there, if you get to go home and share a meal with your loved one or your loved ones, and that's holding together. If you, if you have kids and that's holding together, if you have a spouse and that's holding together, that's God. He's in that. He's right in the midst of that, holding it together. Your life is being held together. And it's grace being manifested all the time, all the time. But bad things happen. But God can work from those bad things good. 
Notice that the promise is not that bad things are really just good things in disguise. That's not what I'm saying. And, and I think that's how people take it when we shove that down their throat. If you try to say that that whatever bad thing happened can be good, uh, that's just saying like that. That's this really awful thing is just a good thing in disguise. No, here's a very, very real truth. Truthfully, I tell you this, this is the way Jesus would say, I'll tell you a truth. Bad things are bad. <laughs> bad things are bad. When Jesus, think about this in his own life, when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus, was he smiling about it? Like, oh, I, it's a bad thing, but it's really a good thing in disguise. Like, watch those guys and, and all smirking. No, what is he doing? What is he doing when he's standing outside that tomb? He is weeping. He is crying his guts out. His friend has passed away. A bad thing has happened. Death is not a good thing. And but he's about to work good. Um, but the thing that happened is very, really, concretely bad. It's awful. Bad things are truly bad. But for those who love God, they can be worked for good. God can use a bad thing to have good effects in your life. That doesn't mean, especially if you did the bad thing, it doesn't mean you won't have to deal with the consequences, but good can come out of it. And I've, I've known that to be true in my own life. I've known that to be true in the lives of people in my family. I've known that to be true in the lives of my friends and their families. That's why, that's why James writes later in his, in his letter, he says, consider it pure joy when, you undergo, when you're undergoing trials. Why is Jesus so distressed at the tomb of Lazarus? Why is he crying? I'll tell you why, because he hates the fall. He's like, it didn't have to be this way. If, if nothing would have gone wrong, if you wouldn't have, have made the choice a, a bad one way back in the beginning, then you wouldn't be dealing with all this death and sin and destruction. He, is, he hates what the world has become. And his friends are dealing with it, and it's part of his life, and he is crying about it. He hates loneliness. Jesus hates loneliness, and he hates pain, and he hates death, and he hates alienation, and he hates bullying. He hates hate. In fact, he hates them so much, he was willing to experience all of that himself so that eventually he could destroy them, destroy those things, that he could destroy pain and death and, and alienation and, and all of that. He was willing to experience all of it so he could destroy all of that and avoid destroying you and me because of his love. So, the promise in verse 28 is not that bad things won't happen, it's that in Romans 8, 28, it's that God will take them and work them for good in the totality, in the, in the all of your life. Maybe not in that moment, maybe not even for a long time after that moment. The promise is that in the totality of your whole life, no matter how bad the bad is, God promises that he will work it for good. And you have to recognize this, I hope you recognize this, that God is not avoided in the person of his son Jesus the pain and the death and the misery and, take, and Jesus taking all that on himself, even though Jesus himself is like, can this be taken from me? Jesus asked the question, essentially, why me? <laughs> why am I qualified for this? Shouldn't I be unqualified for this? And we'll get to that later on in the series. But um, it says he works all these things for good. Some of the bits of the all, that whole totality, some of the little bits of it we are able to see in part. And the parts we don't yet see, they remain a mystery. But God sees them all and works them 
for good. So whatever you're going through in the past or in the future, whatever you're going through, God will work it, work good into that in the all. Really, it comes down to this. Um, I love this quote by Jonathan Edwards, 18th century preacher. He says, if you can grasp the truth, if you can grasp and own this truth, look down on the whole army of worldly afflictions under your feet and consider with joy that however great or numerous they are, let them all join forces against you and put on their most terrifying experiences, vigor and violence against you. And you can know that it will all be in vain. If you can grasp that, here's what'll happen. When good things are holding together, you're gonna wanna look at God and thank him and praise him. And when bad things are happening, you might not wanna thank him, but you won't be shocked by it. You won't be shocked by it. And the more that you can grasp this, you'll say, come on troubles, try and lay me low. You can lay me know, but the higher you'll raise me. It's kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You could strike me down, Darth, but if you, if you do, I will only grow stronger than you can possibly imagine. The more you destroy me, the more these things come at you and try to destroy you, actually what's happening in and through Jesus is that the more you will be developed and, and you'll be more developed to be like him. So if I were to encapsulate all of this and wrap it up, because I know this has gotten a little longer than normal, um, everything that happens to us, the good and the bad, I feel like it's here when we read the words of Jesus and look at his life and see what Paul has to say about it. And we look at the life of this Shunammite woman. Everything, the good and the bad, is there to mold us, to be more like Jesus. It's an opportunity to be shaped, for us to be polished into more of the likeness of Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul is saying when he says, you know, God can take the good and the bad and he wants to conform us into the image of Jesus. That's that, those he foreknew. Who did he foreknew? Foreknow. <laughs> Everyone. And he wants all of us to be, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, into the likeness of his son. Basically, he's going to make you like him. If you read these verses in Romans 8, and it boils down to this. If you center your life on Jesus, he's going to give you his compassion. He's going to give you his courage to face all these things. He's going to give you his love. And you'll begin to see things in this life as he see th sees things. So even if it's good and even if it's bad, if you're in Jesus, you are on a collision course for greatness. So things can turn out for bad or for good. But think, the good things that are truly good from him, they can never be lost. And th there's really good things to come in the future. The, the way we like to say it now is the best is yet to come, right? So true joy for the followers of Jesus is not based on circumstances, but on convictions and truths about our God and our creator that do not change, about Jesus and the good news of his kingdom. Now, again, as I wrap this up, that is not to trivialize, trivialize pain and suffering. Uh, like we're saying that one day <laughs> we're all just going to go to heaven, so just tough it out. No, the gospel doesn't trivialize story, uh, trivialize uh, the suffering that we're going through in our stories in our life. But um, I want to give you a little bit of homework to wrap it up here. Go back and read First Kings chapter four, and you're also going to want to hit Second uh, Kings chapter four, and you're going to want to hit Second Kings uh, chapter eight as well, um, because you know what happened to that Shunammite woman. Um, well, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to look it up. I want you to go find out about that. That's your homework. You have to find out for yourself. I will tell you this about Horatio Spafford, if you don't know the rest of that story. 
He lost his son and his daughters. And as he is traveling across the ocean to meet up with his wife, who sent him a telegram that said, saved alone, he's on his way over there. And um, the captain of the ship at one point calls him to his quarters and says, I want to talk to you. And so Horatio goes to the captain's quarters and the captain says, I want you to sit down and tell you what's going on here. He's like, we made some uh, careful calculations. And right now we figured out that we are um, right in the very spot where where the Villa de Havre ship, where it sank. The, uh, we are right there right now. Um, I wanted to let you know. And so Horatio, he goes back. He goes back to his quarters and he starts to write a song. And the song that he wrote has been sung in churches for over a hundred years. We sing this song today. And the song is called, It Is Well. You may be familiar with it, you may not, but I'll, I wanna read you just some of the stanzas of that. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.